This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Fence Physio. I am your host, as always, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist in the Maryland area, and I am joined by my dashing, my debonair, my devious co-host, Matthew Owens. How are you doing tonight, Matt? I'm doing excellent tonight, Andy. It's good to be back talking a little bit of physical therapy um, topics with you tonight, but I've been distracted a little bit by the Olympics lately taken most of my time. Um, have you had a chance to watch any of your favorite sport, wrestling? Uh, yes. Uh, one of my former high school teammates, Sarah Hildebrandt, is representing the U.S. at 50 kilograms. She will be wrestling uh, Thursday, August the 5th at 10 p.m. in her first match, so Eastern time. Uh, the U.S. women have been doing really well. Um, two medals already out of six wrestlers. Um, the U.S. men haven't had too much of a chance to compete yet, but um, at the time of this recording, uh, David Taylor at the 86-kilogram weight class is going to be wrestling for the gold medal. So, yeah, wrestling's been pretty good. My only problem with it, the coverage. Uh, you can't watch it on NBC primetime. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, if you do want to watch it through the NBC app and you watch some recordings, NBC didn't bother to pay for any former like Olympic medalists in the sport <laughs> or anybody who's actually competed in the sport to cast the event. They have two British guys who are judo announcers and have no idea what they're talking about. Well, so, welcome to the world of wrestling. Mildly frustrating. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. When basketball's on, they get Vince Carter to, you know, <laughs> narrate. When gymnastics on, they have Nastia Lucan, you know, like, oh, these are the sports that they'll pay for somebody to come and <laughs> represent. But wrestling they don't seem to really care about. Even though it was the first non track sport added to the Olympics. First non track sport. Well it's got some good press over the last day or two with the recent gold medal one. Um so, well, it's yeah. good because the U.S. women's wrestling team is stacked this year and pretty amazing. Go check it out. Check it out. So what do we have on our docket today, Andy? What are we talking about? Something I think really controversial. It's not <laughs> black and white at all. There's a lot of people on both sides of this issue, I think. Well, you are being a pain in the butt about this one because we are here to talk about opioid usage and physical therapy's role in um, changing, maybe, the opioid use in our patient populations in uh, physiotherapy and musculoskeletal injuries. Now, I run into patients every day who believe that without their medication, their Norcos or 
Um, things like that matter, they would never be able to manage their back pain or function um, in their daily life. I can even go so far as to say I know one person specifically who um, you know, has threatened to kill themselves to their family doctor when they wouldn't refill their Norco prescription that they've been on for, you know, 15 years. What's going on with, with opioids? What's the, what's, what's the problem? Well, Matt, one time I used anecdotal evidence and I was a hundred percent right. <laughs> That's why I use it every time. <laughs> uh, instead of, you know, basing my, uh, review into this topic in patient stories, I tried to take a look into uh, physical therapy literature and uh, surgical literature and, you know, a little bit of a general practitioner. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association was delivered to my house like every week. They, they really put out a lot of, a lot of issues. <laughs> want this, and this isn't, this isn't digital? They're printing no, paper? No, it's a hard copy, at least oh one God. a week, yes. Yeah, so if you really want to get a buildup of um, journals in your library. <laughs> Sign up. Um, can't. I was looking. I was looking. This was a scoping review on my part because I was looking for good examples of when opioid prescription is definitely better than kind of other conservative, more conservative methods of you know non-prescription pain management. And I couldn't find any. I looked for cancer pain related pain because I was like, oh, that's going to be one that I'm totally going to find something that opioids are the best at cancer related pain. And uh, based on the article um, that I found that was uh, in complementary medicine <laughs> by Nuria Lopez Sendon at all effects. Oh, wait. Yep. Effects of physical therapy on pain and mood in patients with terminal cancer. Physical therapy was actually just as effective for pain management as the opioids were, if not more so especially on mood. So I was like, well, that's not it. So I was thinking, well, maybe uh, osteoarthritis, you know, like uh, those people have pain that, and they don't always do well in physical therapy. But in the effect of opioid versus non-opioid medications on pain-related function in patients with chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain, the SPACE randomized control trial published in JAMA in 2018 by Aaron E. Krebs. Yep, uh, long-term... <laughs> Uh, benefit from opioid usage was negligible. So I was like, dang it, I'm really having trouble finding anything that says opioids good. I wanted to find something and rub it in that face digitally, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> that opioids were good for something and better than physical therapy. And I had thought, well, maybe if they're not better than physical therapy, they are a good adjunct to physical therapy, thinking post surgically um, patients after surgery get prescribed opioids to help manage their pain, get them moving quicker, sooner, with less discomfort. In the article that I stumbled across, they showed that patients who didn't take opioids actually reported lower pain scores than those who did. Um, so that shot my theory down as well. Um, now you mentioned something about like exercise as being a uh, way to reduce pain. I mean that doesn't seem like it makes any sense at all. So I had to look it up. Um, and our word for today 
is vocab time with Matthew Owens. <laughs> I lost my doctor title because I didn't know what it was. Dang it. Oh, okay. So. Um, <laughs> uh, what is exercise-induced hypoalgesia? Algesia. I can't even say it. So, uh, also shortened to EIH. So, in the simplest terms, it is a decrease in sensitivity to painful stimuli after exercise. There's all sorts of really neat ways that people experiment with this. I also want to know the... I'm always interested, like the subjects, like who signs up for the the trial of this? Like, all right, we're going to do this really painful thing to you. We'll do this other thing, and then we'll see if it still hurts just as much. One of the most commonly tested hypotheses for EIH is that exercise induces a release of endogenous opioids at either the peripheral, spinal, or central sites, all of which contribute to pain modulation. modulation. Muscle contractions activate group 3 A-delta and 4C primary afferents and skeletal muscle, and stimulation of these fibers can activate the endogenous opioid system. Elevations in peripheral blood beta-endorphin concentrations have been reported in men following exercise, and it has been suggested that the stimulation of peripheral afferent neurons modulate pain by activating spinal or supraspinal inhibitory mechanisms. So if exercise i recommend our followers go to youtube Ooh, and yes. search arnold schwarzenegger the pump and have arnold explain to you the feeling he gets after working his muscles caution this is not uh not child friendly not child friendly yes I remember, yes, it's like he's doing a, a, a certain feeling all day in the gym, if I remember yeah. correctly, yeah. Um, so what's interesting uh, yeah, is... I'm, I'm trying to think of it, but it's not coming to me. <laughs> That's one of uh, your better better puns <laughs> you've ever had in one of these episodes. I mean, uh, I don't I, mean to be a dick about it. But... <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, so the interesting thing is they're looking at the same pathway of pain modulation as medications that we're talking about. What's interesting is in the research, while that's the most commonly looked at pathway, what they found in human trials is if they give patients a opioid antagonist or something that blocks that pathway, there's still a pain modulating effect. The thought being that there's a multimodal pathway that exercise um, acts upon to help reduce pain. And one of these may be being the endocannabinoid pathway as well, which would be from a medical perspective or a mm, medication perspective, I guess, in most states besides Indiana, um, as marijuana or cannabis. So my question being, if we aren't going to use opioids and nobody wants to exercise for pain relief besides Arnold Schwarzenegger, what are patients and medical professionals going to turn to besides opioids for a quick fix for pain? Oh, so we want to talk about what things there are that can alleviate pain? Well, good. Um, it's a very, very, very short list. Um, let's see. We got Reiki. We've got acupuncture. We've got crystal therapy. We've got massage. We've got manual therapy. We've got 
patient education, we have uh, sham patient education with, uh, um, we got e-stem, we got ultrasound, we have uh, dry needling, we have, and I think that is just maybe... You didn't mention lasers, lasers. Give or take 10, lasers. 10% of the possible options. <laughs> Everything reduces pain. If you want to look for any kind of intervention with the intention was, hey, we want to reduce pain, you'll probably find something where it reduces pain. There's all kinds of things. When that, when that is your outcome, hey, we're trying to find something that reduces pain. You're likely going to find an effect. If you went around looking for, hey, I bet none of these things actually make a significant increase in, or decrease in pain, you might have a little bit better methodology to your research. But with the intention of looking for something that causes pain relief, you're going to find things that cause pain relief because pain is such a complex and multimodal experience that so many different things can affect it, whether they be physical, psychological, or sociological. Sociological? So yeah, same. that's the word. Influences from culture. So an interesting um, perspective that I read in uh, Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, um, book. was Good that... Book. Uh, in long distance runners, perception of pain is just taken differently when given a test of how long can you keep your hands in a bucket of freezing water until you get to 10 out of 10 pain and distance runners just last longer. <laughs> and it's probably because they think of pain as like, oh, this is good. That means I'm getting some benefit out of it. I'm doing it right if it hurts, you know, and that's just the culture around uh, distance running is that pain is part of the sport. So for them, maybe pain is just a normal thing and they experience it different than the rest of us. So I don't think uh, we have to look too far to find other things that can reduce pain. Now, if opioids can reduce pain, all these other things can reduce pain, but you know, why can't we take, just take the opioids then? And I would say that it has everything to do with uh, a non-inferiority approach, right? If all these things are getting a similar effect, um, why not opioids? Well, if you pull up statistics on opioid-related overdose deaths, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, abuse, <laughs> <laughs> it's getting late, right. the National Institute of Drug Abuse has documented that the uh, deaths related to uh, opioids have doubled from 2010 to 2018. So it's just in the, you know, in an eight-year span have more than doubled. So with these number of deaths increasing so severely, that's why. You don't see the number of physical therapy-related deaths doubling in the same time period. You don't see a lot of physical therapy-related deaths. You don't see a lot of Reiki-related deaths either. So I'm not trying to promote physical therapy is way better. But there are a lot of other interventions that can cause similar pain relief to opioids and have a lot less risk factors uh, a lot less risks of death, which is kind of a bad outcome when it comes to uh, medical literature, from what I've under come to understand. What you can understand. So what's interesting, too, is a review um, by the Harvard School of Medicine found that in 2014 and 15, opioid manufacturers paid hundreds of doctors, some in the six figures, and thousands of doctors were paid more than $25,000 for consulting in other things. And now they can draw a conclusion as if, if the money drove opioid prescriptions or if 
hire prescribing doctors, then we're somehow, you know, kind of brought into these things. But that is uh, something that we, you know, always get worried about within the medical profession is that there's an outside influence on treatment and prescriptions. We deal with it in physical therapy when it comes to reimbursement pressures from um, companies or organizations to do things that might not be in the patient's best interest from a financial perspective. Um, and in this case, it's something that has pro undeniably, I would say, led to more, more deaths in, um, in patients being treated for pain. Yeah, and specifically in patients that are in underrepresented groups has been have been affected much more strongly. And we, we all know that this is a, a big issue because um, the Purdue Pharmaceutical Company, you know, just reached that $4 billion settlement with a bunch of states that were looking to sue for damages, you know, for the unscrupulous, you know, like, promotion of opioid usage, kind of like you were saying. So obviously there's been big incentive to sell these things. There's been very little due diligence on the part of the companies, you know, the pharmaceutical companies to moderate these things because they were aware that it could cause problems. And that's why they had to settle that lawsuit because it was pretty clear that they knew what they were doing was a wee bit dodgy. <laughs> and uh I was, yeah, so from a, I was gonna say from a physical therapy perspective one of the articles i think that i posted on the twitter feed is that referrals for people with neoa or low back pain to physical therapy range between somewhere in seven and 13 percent of patients will will come to physical therapy what are your thoughts on the barriers to access to physical therapy or is it something that um, we've created for ourselves, you know, with PT obviously standing for pain and torture. So how, how are we supposed to help people manage their discomfort? I don't think physical therapy needs to go and start a big promotional campaign and pour money into doctors to get referrals to really get in on this pain management, I don't know, hole that's been left by the uh, lack of opioids. I don't think we need to go after that. I think we're getting enough patients as is. I don't think we need to promote ourselves as the pain managers. Um, there are already a lot of professions that fill that niche. I think physical therapy should stick with what the APTA has laid out for us. We want to be the movement specialists. I want to stick with working on movement. 99 out of 100 patients come in the door already are coming in because they have pain. I do not believe that we need to promote ourselves anymore because most people come to physical therapy with pain, at least in outpatient orthopedics. Maybe there's some other condition, other practices out there where you see difference. So I don't think there's any real need to do that. I just am a bit frustrated by this conversation in general because this is supposed to be on the fence physio. We're supposed to be on the fence about these things. We're supposed to be dealing with gray topics. We're supposed to be dealing with things that are not so clear, that are pretty controversial. And this one just seems like, yeah, just don't don't do the opioids pretty much anytime. Unless you can't go and do any of the other things that can help with pain that are safer. 
So like I was going to make the argument, well, hey, if you're contraindicated for physical therapy, like you've got some severe things going on medically that just you can't participate in therapy, like you shouldn't. But the thing is, there are so many other options that we can use for pain relief too that are safer. So it's like there's really not a whole lot of reason why. If somebody has a good article to defend the use of, bring it because I am interested. I want to read it. But this one just seems pretty clear cut for me. Yeah, I was going to try my best to play the devil's advocate. It just couldn't really do it very well. So, um, but I appreciate that yeah, conversation. This is a devil that is unrepresentable. Unrepresentable. <laughs> I'm a terrible defense attorney for the you know the obvious murderer. Yeah. I have to work on that. But. This, this devil needed to settle a lawsuit out of court. So I think you have something for our next topic, Andy. That I think maybe not controversial in some ways but there's a lot of uh, hopefully good insights around it maybe stir up some conversation uh oh what, i think it i think it'll get some people heated up i uh i like to stir the pot as they say stir the pot um so if anybody's been following the bit of controversy with uh ati their stock prices have taken a huge drop as of late as a publicly traded physical therapy company when they uh, didn't reach their uh, quarterly earnings goal that they said they were going to hit you know like investors kind of started to freak out a bit and not going to get on the ATI bashing train I've never worked for ATI I uh, do not want to publicly like smear them but I do want to talk about um, corporate PT and one of the uh, interesting topics, um, conversations that I've had with my coworkers and man- managers is what are some of the things that companies do or choose to do? Because they only have so much money to either, one, um, promote and recruit new staff, you know, particularly new grads, right? Getting young people into the field, into their company. And then also conversely, what do they do to try to retain the staff they do have? and retain senior PTs, incentivize them to stay with the company for longer. And is one of these models better than the other? Is it better to have faster turnover so you're getting younger talent in there, you're not holding on to people with their old dated physical therapy approaches that are starting to raise families and take time away from being a go-getter in the corporate ladder climbing rat race? Or is it better to keep these PTs around for longer because they breed some company loyalty and they get the teamwork attitude and they can uh, mentor other therapists you know, as they become more and more experienced in, within the company ranks? I think there's going to be some interesting conversation around that. I have some spicy opinions and hot takes. I think it'll be good. I think, it, I think it'll be good. Um, I'm sure we'll see a lot of different sides of things. And I, I think it's an interesting thing for myself now as a uh, person who's in a role of a clinic director, like there's comes like, I don't, I don't want to lose these people. How do I, how do I retain good talent that is treating patients well and makes my job easier? So uh, you have some say in your hiring decisions? I do. Ooh. Okay. So uh, my consulting fee is, uh, I think it's a $2,500 retainer, and I can do Tuesday, every first Tuesday of the month. <laughs> if anybody else has a, a better um, fee, just you know, shoot me a message on Twitter, and 
I'm mm. I'm open to other options besides Andy. I listen to him enough. Uh, yeah. All right. So I think that'll be good. So if you're not already following us, um, look for um, at OTF Physio on Twitter. Um, look for our recorded episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Catch up with our episodes. Give us your input on where you want us to head in the future. And then contribute to our next conversation on our Twitter feed. It'll be the pinned tweet at the top. Again, thank you very much for joining us. This has been another episode of On the Fence Physio. Have a good day.